Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Today our focus is the Reformation, and in particular, the Dutch Reformation. I have here with me in the studio today two friends, both of whom are Reformation scholars from the Netherlands. Professor Herman Selderhuis from the University of Appledorn and Carla Apperlou Boersma. Welcome, both of you, to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Let's begin with you, Herman. Uh, both of you are involved in a movement called Refo 500. And I'd like for you to say a little bit about what is REFO 500, what are we trying to do in this movement, and what is your role in it? Well, REFO 500 is a platform of some hundred institutions worldwide, seminaries, newspapers, cities, travel agents, publishers, um, museums, all kinds of institutions, and we work headed for the commemoration of the Reformation, Luther's announcement of the 95 Thesis, Reformation of the Church, 2017, that will be 500 years ago. But um, we uh, want to organize all kinds of things to show the relevance of the Reformation for today. And we do that in uh, varied uh, combinations. So we have projects in which a church, a city, and a seminary work together, for example, on an exhibition or on a trip or on a book or on a movie or uh, we work with uh, local churches, with denominations, we work with uh, schools, so it's a very varied uh, program and platform, a lot of things going on there. In fact, we had in intended it just a project for the Netherlands, but uh, as soon as the Belgians and the Germans got news of it, they wanted to join, and we said, well, we just go across the border, and right now we have partners like Beeson, mm -hmm. and we have partners in Brazil, and in Korea, South Africa, and all over Europe, and it's... Uh, it's a fascinating project, not just uh, uh, Reformed or Protestant institutions, also Catholic institutions. We have a Jewish institution when a synagogue takes part because of the relevance of the Reformation for the rediscovery of Hebrew. And we have secular institutions, so uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating project. We enjoy it a lot, and I may function as a director of the, of the project. And Carla, what is your role with the REFO 500? Well, I'm the project manager of, of Revo 500, and we started this uh, this project a few years ago after the the Kelvin year we had in in the Netherlands in Europe, uh, where we saw that there was a, a wide interest for for contents from the Reformation, and when they are presented in an attractive way. And so, in 2009, Herman and I said. Well, we had a great uh, success with the Kelvin year. We should do something with it. Let's make a platform. And my role was to to uh, invent this platform and uh, to uh, to organize it and to uh, to bring people together and also to uh, inform right now to inform all the partners on the things that are happening and planned on the platform and to do uh, public relation, etc., uh, etc. Et so it's a fascinating movement and one that has broad implications, which is appropriate for the Reformation, which was not a single focus movement, but it touched many different cultures, languages, religious groups, society. And so you're bringing all this together into focus leading up to, though, the year uh, 2017 which will be the 500th anniversary of Luther's posting of the 95 Theses 
on the Castle Church door in Wittenberg. Yes, but we do not want to wait until 2017 because in the first place there are so many possibilities in this project that you do not want to wait till 2017. Besides, there are so many um, relevant topics that need uh, attention today that we work with them today. Um, and uh, we also have the conviction that the Reformation is not just something to be commemorated or celebrated. You have to work with the with the ideas, with the things that's been said and done, and you have to make people aware what the um, the relevance of the Reformation is for today in that sense that, that the modern world um, in the church, outside of the church, is uh, cannot be thought without uh, getting uh, some insight in what this Reformation did and meant. Now, you're speaking to a group of uh, listeners, many of whom are pastors involved in the ministry of the church. So I wonder if each of you would say a little bit about the Reformation and the ministry, the Reformation and the life of the church today. Uh, Why can uh, pastors and other church leaders, Christians, uh, why should they pay attention to the Reformation? Yes, in our opinion, it's it's always important to know where you come from and to learn from uh, the people who have lived and studied before you. And when you take a look at the heritage of the Reformation as to theology, etc., from reformers like Luther and Calvin and Swingley and Butcher, and you study it, you will find, no doubt, uh, things that you can use for your uh, today's pastoral practice and practice as a minister, for example, uh, how do you deal with themes like life and death? People long ago lived also with the knowledge, I shall die, and then, how is my relation with God? Will I meet him or not? Will he condemn me or not? And um, if we study what the reformers have written about that, we can use that in today's practice. But that is only uh, an example on one field of the influence of the Reformation. Reformation had influence, as you know, on the shape of the church, on the theology, but also on on arts and music and poetry. And Mm. uh, in Reform 500, we want to, to show that relevance on the various fields I mentioned. Now, Carla, you are in particular involved with a celebration of the Heidelberg Catechism. This was a document that originally was published in 1563, so we'll be coming up to an anniversary of that very shortly. Tell us, what is the Heidelberg Catechism, and why is it so important as a document of the Reformation? The Heidelberg Catechism uh, was published in Heidelberg in, in the year you mentioned, 1563, and rapidly after this year, it spread in various uh, languages all over Europe. It appears that it is a document that can be used very uh, well for instruction, uh, for teaching. Part of the success of this uh, confession is that it's, it's, it's not purely a dogmatic document, but it's, it's, it deals about me. What can I do with all those dogmatic principles and what does it mean to me? The the opening of the Heidelberg is is splendid. What is your only comfort in life and death? What is the only comfort? That's the question uh, everyone will be faced with in his life. And then the answer is, it's that Jesus Christ owns me. I belong, body and soul. (laughs) Yes, to him. So that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. That's the question and then the answer to the Heidelberg Catechism, question one. And this has a very special role, does it not, in the Dutch Reformed tradition? Yeah, that's correct. And that was one of our motives to pay attention to the Heidelberg Catechism. It is a, it's a confession, and um, the Reformed churches have adapted this document as a confession. And in our churches, the Reformed churches in the Netherlands, 
many churches uh, use this document uh, for the sermons on uh, Sunday, Sunday afternoon. Uh, they preach on the Heidelberg Catechism. So it's, it is a document that is still in use for, the, for, for teaching the, the persons, the younger persons in our church. We also still use the Heidelberg Catechism as, as basis document. I'm speaking today on the Beeson Podcast to Carla bursma Apperlu and to uh, Professor Herman Selderhus. They're both Reformation scholars from the Netherlands. They're visiting Beeson Divinity School. They've both been a part of our Reformation Spirituality Conference. And we've been talking here today about the Dutch Reformed tradition, the Reformation in the Netherlands. Herman, tell us a little bit about the Netherlands, the history of the Reformation. Uh, we think a lot about the Reformation, of course, in terms of Germany and Luther. We think about Calvin in Switzerland, Zwingli. Um, but the Netherlands, what's significant and distinctive about the Dutch experience? Well, I think uh, distinctive is that uh, in the Netherlands has the, there's a narrow relation between the Reformation and the revolt. See, William of Orange wanted to get rid of the Spanish, and uh, all Dutch actually wanted that. We were occupied territory then. And the theology of John Calvin, who has a theology in which, to a certain extent, resistance against the authority is allowed. William of Orange used that as a means and that meant that his choice for Calvinism, in fact, meant that the, the Dutch church became a Calvinistic church, a Reformed church. Now, the Dutch also have a tradition of, uh, of discussions, of polemics. Uh, we have a lot of political parties, and uh, we have a lot of different languages within one language. And so also we create a lot of different churches within the Reformed tradition. So we like to discuss and to struggle and to split up. And that means that we have resulted in uh, some 10 or 12 reformed denominations in such a small country. In, in fact, they all took one part of the Reformation tradition. One has have gone more in a pietistic tradition, more the experience of faith, the other more gone in the systematizing of faith. And we are now in a process, and that commemoration of the Reformation helps to come together again and to see that we all came from the same background. Now, as to the importance of the Reformation, the Netherlands was one of the major uh, nations in the world in those days. That has changed ever since, but in those days, we were, we were quite important, um, as, as people in the United States uh, know, because there was a time when we owned Manhattan. You know, we did mm. one, There was one bad deal we did in our history. We sold Manhattan. <laughs> we should have never done that. Uh, so we had the, the colonies, and that also helped to spread out this Reformation theology, because all, where the Dutch went, they started churches, and they brought their Bible, they brought their theology, their sermons, their preaching, but also their catechism, which was the Heidelberg Catechism, and that helped to spread. So the, the Dutch tradition has been important in, in that sense, and I think also in the sense that there has been a lot of Reformation research done in the Netherlands, <clears throat> especially also in the days when <clears throat> the whole scholarly world still talked Latin, and we profit from that. But on the other hand, you know, we are just one voice in the in, in the choir of Reformation voices. Yeah, one of my great teachers of the Reformation was Heiko Obermann, oh, yeah. a, a Dutch. Yeah. Very, yeah. He always was so important that you say on the last letter of his name, there's one N, not one. two. No, no. Because no. he was Dutch, not German. Right. Oh, no, yes. <laughs> and he remembered the period of the Nazis <clears throat> and so forth. So he was very proud that he was Dutch. He was a wonderful teacher, a wonderful scholar. In fact, on the Beeson podcast, uh, not too long ago, we had a lecture that Heike Obermann delivered here at Beeson oh, Divinity right? School mm -hmm. in our archives, and we played that. It was a wonderful lecture on Luther and the Reformation. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you about some names. I'm just going to throw out some, some names from the history of the Netherlands and Dutch Reformed Church. 
listeners, and maybe both of you could give us a little brief, uh, very brief biographical review of this name. So the name that will be known to so many people is from the history of art is Rembrandt. What does Rembrandt say about the Reformation? Well, I think Rembrandt um, was was, uh, inspired by the Reformations in his topics of his paintings and the way he did it. But Raymond was also a painter who uh, painted for the money. He was Dutch, you know. He was Dutch. <laughs> he was Dutch. <laughs> but so he, I do know But he was a Protestant, yes? yes. A R- Dutch Reformed? Yeah, Not well, so you know, in, in those days, uh, nearly all were Protestant. You know, it was just part of If you want, want to get a job, you better be a member of the Protestant church. Okay. Which is something else than living the Protestant life, for yeah. which Raymond is not too famous. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate that honesty about this great, nonetheless, a very great painter. We all agree with that, a, ma- a master painter. Okay, here's another name, Abraham Kuyper. Well, Kuyper is a fascinating figure. You know, he's, he's as great as he was small in, in height. Um, he was a, a theologian. He was a statesman. He was a scholar. He was a writer. He was a preacher. Um, and he has done very much, you know, an impressive lot to relate the message of the Reformation to a situation of, of his days uh, politically, in the church, in the social life. So he's, he's the father of neo-Calvinism. He's had a bad press for many years because of uh, things that have not gone the way they should have gone because of his dominance. But there is a rediscovery of Abram Kuyper, especially when you, when you see how he tried to redefine matters of, of government and of uh, social life, uh, of education, of uh, pedagogy in relation to the Reformation message. Well, you know, he's he's well known in this country uh, for having given the uh, famous Calvin lectures at Princeton in which he said there is not one square inch of the universe of which Jesus Christ does not say mine, that belongs to me. So we remember him for uh, holding up the lordship of Jesus Christ over all areas of culture, not just religion, theology, the church, but society, art literature, economics, mm-hmm. all of this. And as you say, it's somewhat controversial how that's played out historically, but he's a figure that is enormously important in the development of modern thinking about uh, the world and the Christian witness in the world. Yeah. So, great. Um, now I'm going to ask you, I'm going to throw you a curveball, uh, because uh, we've been talking about the Dutch Reformed tradition, that's your tradition, and yet um, I belong to a movement called the Baptists, mm-hmm. and we have a little toehold in Holland, too because it was in Amsterdam that the first Baptist sort of began in the early 17th century. Now, uh, what do you think about Baptists? Are, are they still active in the Netherlands? Or do you think of them as heretics? What oh, would you there, say there about There are some Baptist? good ones. <laughs> <laughs> Which means there are some that are not so good. But, uh, no, no, no. Okay. Yeah, well, curveball is baseball. We, we play soccer, so I don't know really how to deal <laughs> okay. with that question. Oh, all right. Uh, but uh, we, we'll get there. Well, see, um, Baptist has in the Netherlands a little different connotation than it has in the States as far as our experience is. Uh, Baptists have often been seen as more a split-off of people who went out of the Reformed tradition to start a church based on um, credo-baptism, as you say it. Not so much related to the the ones that started the church in the uh, 17th century. Mm -hmm. I think it was 1610, wasn't it? That's right, 1610. And that also has as a consequence that for many in the Reformed tradition, Baptists are seen as the same people as the Anabaptists in the 16th century, and that has given them a, a, a bad name 
in the in the theological sense. Mm. They have a good reputation when it comes to leaving, leading a Christian life. They are pretty famous for that. Um, so that's that's what I would say to the Baptists. But now that we have um, also in the Netherlands uh, started to think more globally, see, it's not more the Netherlands, it's not even Europe, it's Christianity in the world. We have discovered too that. Uh, that, that that there is more to be said about baptism than we have said so far. Herman, you yourself are very involved with the uh, International uh, Congress on Calvin Research, mm-hmm. uh, and you're a great Calvin scholar. I want to ask you to say a little bit about your own work on Calvin Research, particularly your work on Calvin's Psalms commentary, because you've published several very important books on that. Uh, and then maybe tie into that a little bit about this uh, International Congress of Calvin Research. Well, first let me say that um, my interest was more in, in Luther than in Calvin because spiritually um, uh, we have a um, we are closer connected to Luther than to Calvin. Calvin is more rationalistic, but since I am in the Reformed tradition and I'm in a Calvinistic uh, university, I had to deal with Calvin, of course, and. Uh, I did not regret that, so I, I started working on his Psalms commentary because I, I I sensed in Calvin that he identifies with David a lot, and that uh, he, David was a refugee, Calvin was a refugee. They both went to uh, hard times, and they both were not too easy, so easy to handle. So, um, and and uh, that was one aspect. The other aspect is that I have encountered as I've, I've been a minister for ten years. And in that Calvinistic tradition, I ran into a lot of people who were had serious doubts about their e- eternal state. You know, will I go to heaven? And they related that to the doctrine of predestination. And it was said, it all, Calvin is to blame for that. And I had a hard time believing that. So I went to, to read Calvin himself. And I, I found a, a, a very uh, certain theologian who was a lot of, there is a lot of joy of faith in his works, especially in the Psalms. He deals with the, the matters of God's providence, when things go wrong, with God's wrath, with God's guidance over, over life. Uh, so I did not regret that. And, you know, studying Kelvin and, and having the position of uh, president of the International Kelvin Congress, I also encountered that, um, here is a man who knows how to say things in a concise way. Uh, Luther needs a lot of words to get to his message, but Calvin is uh, smart, and he has a lot to say about other things than just theology in church also. And in the uh, International Calvin Congress, we try to encourage younger scholars to work on Calvin, to bring international scholars together, to uh, stimulate res- Calvin research in, in, in non-Western uh, uh, areas, and that works out pretty well. Uh, you know, reading Kelvin in a Korean context or in a South African context is uh, is uh, quite different. So that that's a fascinating part of the work. Also. And you meet is it once every four years? We meet every once every four years, and some hundred and hundred twenty scholars get together. For a long time, it was uh, quite a an American European get together. But uh, last time we met in South Africa, and we had people from various African countries, and South America is is coming in now, and. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, even in Eastern Europe uh, too, so uh, that that makes it uh, rather fascinating. And then I experienced too that Kelvin is a theologian that has a message uh, independent on what uh, what cultural context you're in. Mm. And uh, I, mm. I I explained that out of his refugee situation, he was never home somewhere, so he was home all over the place. Yeah. And that is that you find that in his theology as well. You know, Paul Tillich, who's not a very good theologian in my opinion, <laughs> but nonetheless, 
Uh, he wrote a book called On the Boundary, mm-hmm. and I think that's a very good title to express Calvin's situation. He was always, it seems to me, on the boundary, sure. on the boundary between the medieval world, the modern world, of course, politically, socially. Uh, in many ways, uh, he's a boundary kind of figure, oh, yeah. which ties in with your theme of the refugee also, mm-hmm. looking for a home. And you've written a biography of Calvin, yeah. uh, which draws a lot on his letters. And one of the things that I thought you did in that biography, which I really liked very much, and we've used that as a textbook here at Beeson Divinity oh, School. Oh, good for you. It's great. Uh, but you humanize Calvin. I mean, he comes across as a real person, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he, he married a wife. He had a child. He struggled like we all struggle, and not just sort of this erudite, elite uh, theologian who never touches the earth. So uh, tell us a little bit about Calvin, the real person. Yeah, well, the image is that Calvin is um, is always uh, looks dark into the world, and he is a statue, and he's written one book, The Institutes, and it's hard to read that. And uh, so I was just wondering if that if that was really true. So I started reading his letters. If you want to find someone, you've got to find him in his in his letters, not in his his theological works uh, so much. And I discovered that here is a man who has a who has fears, you know, who is afraid and uh, who, who cries, who gets very emotional over the death of, of friends and, and, and of his child and his wife and uh, someone who who really attempts to get into the, the lives of others, who can get mad even at, at small things and someone who, uh, you know, who loves his mother, although she died when he was still a child, um, who uh, has a hard time, you know, finding h- how do I organize church right? I really, for myself, discovered Kelvin to be a human being mm. more than I ever thought he was. There was a book some years ago by the French scholar Richard Stoffet yes. called yes. The Humanness yes. of John Calvin. Yes. So you pick up on that theme and uh, develop it in a very interesting way uh, in your biography, which is published in this country by InterVarsity, Intervarsity Press. Press yes. And what's the title of it? John Calvin, A Pilgrim's Life. A Pilgrim's Life. We're always on the road. You point right. that out. Always he says, on the road. We're always on the road. Yeah. Well, Carla, uh, you have spoken also today here at Beeson about Martin Bootser. That's another name that uh, is not terribly well-known today, but he was very influential in the 16th century, including his influence on John Calvin. So tell us a little bit about Bootser and your perspective on him. Yeah, Bootser was a monk. Um, I went to the Dominicans. He left the monastery um, because of uh, his ideas. He was influenced by Martin Luther and read his uh, works. And he got married and uh, went to uh, Strasbourg, where he became the reformer of uh, Strasbourg. And as you said, uh, he influenced John Calvin, who was a few years, uh, 1538 to 1542, in Strasbourg. And they mutually influenced uh, each other. Uh, what I uh, emphasized this uh, afternoon in my workshop is that uh, Butcher, Butcher was the first one who wrote a systematical pastoral handbook called uh, Von der Ware Seelsorge, concerning the true cares of souls. He gives uh, a method to pastors to uh, approach the congregation members, and he, that is based on the metaphor of uh, the shepherd and the flock, as the Lord describes it in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 34, and he, he gives five tasks for pastors for how to approach the various members of the congregation in their own situation, and that is very helpful also for today, mm. to to um, be aware of, of a person and to know his situation. Uh, does he suffer from something, or does he need comfort, or, or whatever? 
And um, so Butcher gives us a method uh, we could use as an instrument, uh, instrument for pastoral care. We're almost out of time. I'm going to ask each of you to make a closing summary comment in just a minute about the Reformation, your involvement with it. I want to give a little plug, though, for the Reformation commentary on Scripture. I'm the general editor of this project. It's 28 volumes. The first volume has just come out. It's a commentary on Galatians and Ephesians edited by Dr. Gerald Bray of Beeson Divinity School. But Dr. Selderhus has written... uh, a volume, actually two volumes, on the Psalms. And that will be coming out within uh, the next year uh, from InterVarsity Press, the Reformation Commentary on Scripture. So if you haven't subscribed to this series, let me encourage you to do that. I think it will be very helpful for pastors, teachers, scholars, students of the Reformation. Tell us a little bit what we can look for in your particular two-volume commentary on the Psalms. Well, I, f- I focused in my, uh, com- in, in my edition of the commentaries on how can we make the reformers practical for today? How can we um, use, in fact, the reformers to discover the richness of the Psalms? Uh, so I have a lot of um, practical material uh, in there, um, and, uh, and it always relates back to the central Reformation message that we are saved by grace and that, give re- that gives rest to us all. Well, Carla, thank you for coming. Tell us a little bit as we uh, depart from this interview about the Reformation and what we should be hopeful for as we think about Refo 500 leading up to the year 2017. My experience till now working in Refo 500 is that the Reformation is just fascinating because of uh, its large influence on so many fields. What we see right now is that there uh, are a lot of partners who are developing all kinds of activities and, and products as a result of the relevance of the Reformation, because they see the, the relevance. And I can, can uh, mention here the, the conferences, the exhibitions, uh, journeys and trips uh, to uh, Reformation cities uh, and so on. If you are able to take a look at our website, uh, refo500.com then you see we have a timeline uh, with all the activities that are developed inside of Refo 500 and you will see the Beeson Conference the, of these days uh, of mm-hmm. course on the website too so I would invite you all to uh, to take a look at our website Herman how about you? The Reformation is a fascinating uh, period and uh, in fact we talk about the Reformations because it's not just uh, Lutheran it's not it's it's a, it's a reformed tradition it's Lutheran it's the Baptist tradition it's also a Catholic Reformation it meant a lot for the Catholic Church as well and uh, there's a lot to see a lot to do a lot to enjoy a lot to learn and uh, I think we we need more time than than until 2017 to experience all that I want to thank you both for being with us at Beeson Divinity School and sharing this interview together. I've been talking with Professor Herman Selderhus from the University of Appledorn in the Netherlands and with Carla Apperlou Boersma, who's the Managing Director for Refo 500. And they have a website. I encourage you to go and check it out, refo500.com. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having us. And now here with a special announcement is our Beeson Director of Admissions, Sherry Brown. Thank you so much, Dean George. I do want to invite everyone who is interested in attending Beeson to come and visit on Friday, February the 17th for our Spring Preview Day. And that's just a fantastic time to see what it would be like to be a student here. Take a tour of the campus, meet with faculty, meet with students, hear from Dean George. It's the best way to really get a feel for Beeson as a school. 
The easiest way to register for this event is online, and our website is www.beesondivinity.com backslash preview day, and that will lead you right to the preview day registration page. We would love for you to come Friday, February the 17th for our spring preview day. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.